Have you ever wondered why anyone drinks Malort? Or if there are actually lobsters in the Chicago River? Then listen to the Curious City podcast, where we answer all your questions about Chicago and the region. WBEZ's Curious City is part of the NPR network and available wherever you find your podcasts. I'm Justin Kaufman, and this is WBEZ's Weekly News Roundup. There was disappointment in the governor's mansion. The opponents of the fair tax lied about what would happen if it passed, and they threw middle-class families under the bus. There was disbelief in the White House. They're trying, obviously, to commit fraud. Some races were decided. Sean Cassin with his second win, starting a blue streak in the historically Republican district. Some are still up in the air. The race between first-term Democrat Representative Lauren Underwood and Republican State Senator Jim Oberweis remains too close to call. And our election news is happening even as COVID cases surge in our area. Now we're recording this on Friday afternoon. We know that some of the numbers are going to shift. They're going to change. We also know that the Trump campaign is demanding recounts in certain states, but that's not stopping us from bringing you the best local and national analysis. Joining me on today's roller coaster ride is WTTW's Heather Sharon. Happy to be here, Justin. And WBEZ state politics reporter Dave McKinney. Dave, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Boy, Tuesday seems about five years ago, doesn't it? (laughs) It does, right? We were on the air together on election night. All right. So much happening. We want to do a week in review like we usually do on Fridays here, but it's hard to do that when so much is breaking. Let's start with the presidential election. The numbers that have been dumped this morning, even as we speak in Nevada, they continue to give uh, the former vice president a lead. Correct. And the same is true in Pennsylvania. The same is true in Georgia. And the same is true in Arizona. Probably the closest of all of those states is Georgia, which has a law that would allow either candidate to demand a recount if the final tally is within 0.5 percentage points. So it is likely that that is where it will end up in Georgia, which is going to be the center of the political universe in the United States, uh, at least for the next several months. So we will have plenty more to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. And Dave, you know, being together on election night, and we watched how uh, there was uh, astounding leads for Trump in a lot of these states, and you've seen how mail-in votes have have narrowed those leads, or in many cases, uh, changed the lead. We said there was no blue wave, but when this is all said and done, especially if these four states we're talking about go blue, it could be. It it all boils down to the fact that you know, Republicans seem to have a preference to vote on Election Day in person. And Democrats across the country, including here in Illinois, had this preference to do it by mail. And, you know, when we talk about the national results and all those critical states that are now in play and, and we've all been staying up late watching. But here in Illinois, I mean, the congressional race out in the far northwest and west suburbs, I mean, that same dynamic could come into play out there, Absolutely, too, with Lauren right. Underwood and, and Senator Oberweis. I and mean, that's it, Heather. I mean, we have a I'm surprised this isn't getting more oxygen because uh, Oberweis, uh, he came out, the former state mm-hmm. senator came out and said, I'm the winner. I declare victory, which I had him on the show here on Wednesday. The incumbent there, the Democrat, has been mum. She's, she's put out statements saying we're not doing this until all of it's been counted. But there are still thousands of votes that are outstanding. And if it goes the way that uh, other states have gone, there's a good chance that the incumbent wins. 
That's correct. So the last time I looked at it, it was about 700 votes separating Oberweiss and Lauren Underwood. And that is with very few, if any, mail-in absentee ballots captured. So Lauren Underwood's campaign is very confident that those will put her over the top. And in many respects, uh, Jim Oberweiss was Donald Trump before Donald Trump was Donald Trump. Um, He has run for any number of different offices in Illinois. And I certainly will never forget the advertisement in, I believe, his U.S. Senate campaign. <laughs> Dave, correct me if I'm wrong, governor, but we're right. right. It was it was one of those offices where he was in a helicopter over Soldier Field warning of a surge of undocumented immigrants that would you know, remake Illinois. And I think it would be somewhat fitting if both President Trump and uh, Oberweiss end up losing their elections based on a difference in the in very the same ways after they have both erroneously claimed victory that of course cl- holds no force of law or and is is worth anything more than yeah. the paper that it's printed. It's on. funny too because not too long ago when when Oberweiss was running the campaign, I, I just looked that ad up and it's on YouTube if you want to find it that Soldier Field ad. Oberweiss uh, really is the Republican hope at this point because you look around the state. There was uh, a thought that they might be able to challenge Bustos out on the, in the western part of the state. There was a thought about uh, Jeannie Ives uh, competing with uh, Sean Caston. Once all the votes got counted there, we ran away with it. So it seems like uh, Democrats in the state are holding firm. If Oberweiss can hold on to the lead out there, I mean, it would sort of be the cherry on the Sunday for the state GOP, which up until this point this year we thought was just sort of this kind of down and out Entity. I mean, I think at one point I was looking at their campaign finance reports, and if I'm not mistaken, during the summer, I think they only reported having like seven or eight thousand dollars in the bank. I mean, it's not wouldn't be enough to do like a renovation of your bathroom or or whatever. <laughs> and what we saw was that the, the state Republicans they won on the graduated income tax. That was a big thing that they were fighting. They won on Kilbride, as Oberweiss mentioned. They held on to a seat downstate with uh, Rodney Davis, a congressman that was thought to be in a much closer race than he wound up being. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there were were, were quite a few things that Republicans here had to cheer about. And that really, really kind of went against the environment that a lot of people thought was going to prevail on Election Day here and across the country, that there was going to be this massive Democratic wave. Well, it didn't it didn't materialize. Yeah. And and we're going to talk about that, too, because it seems to have sparked some infighting inside the Democratic Party here in Illinois. You know, staying on the congressional races for just a moment, Sean Caston, Congressman Caston, out in the sixth, uh, he had won in 2018 as part of a blue wave. He had beat one of the leading Republicans in the state and Peter Roscom. Uh, and there was question about whether or not he can hold on. But he did decisively. And uh, it seems as if that uh, that district may have swung from from purple to blue, Heather. That was relatively close. It wasn't sort of resolved fully until Wednesday morning. But I don't think that we can sort of ignore the fact that Sean Caston is a white man and Lauren Underwood is a black young woman. And she is facing, you know, a really a closer contest mm-hmm. than Sean Caston is. And I think that if anything of the last four years has brought us to sort of have to confront, it's that race is still an issue. It is especially an issue today. And Lauren Underwood won by five percentage points two years ago. And the fact that she's sort of, you know, eking it out with sort of last minute ballots, even though there are so many more last minute ballots this time, I think it's it's a sobering reminder that perhaps Democratic hopes that, you know, sort of they had claimed the Colorado counties as their own territory was somewhat misplaced. 
Dave, we had talked about it on election night. You really wanted to look at the collar counties. You wanted to look at uh, the suburbs, uh, DuPage County, Kane County, Lake County even. Now that we're on Friday and you see that the 6th, which is a big part of DuPage County and, and Kane County, that area, or, or northwest suburbs, and what we're seeing in the 14th, which is too close to call, how did the uh, suburbs in our area fare? It was really close, actually, to the way they performed in 2016 when Hillary Clinton was up against Donald Trump. I mean, all the McHenry County wound up going for, for Biden, and I would say pretty forcefully. I mean, in DuPage County, for example, where, where we're talking about 58 percent of the vote uh, as of this moment went for Biden. So nearly six in 10 voters out there said that Biden was their choice. And those numbers were pretty similar in Kane County, 55 percent, Lake County, 57 percent. And, and even, you know, Will County was a little bit lower, but still over that 50 percent threshold. Only in McHenry County was was Trump victorious. And, and, and then he just eked it out. He got 51 percent. Mm. So, I mean, I think that what, what you're seeing kind of play out a little bit in, in the underwood Overweis drama that we're seeing here is that, you know, McHenry County is still uh, kind of one of the last vestiges of Republican power in the collar counties. And they showed that in the presidential race. It's a real center in that congressional district for votes. Yeah. So I think that's why it was so close. Uh, Heather, very interesting looking at Cook County. You know, looking at Cook County and, and how the vote broke out when it came to Donald Trump and Joe Biden, because in, in uh, 2016, famously, you kind of saw the northwest side and the southwest side break for Trump and the rest of the county was blue. Similar this time around, but more on the northwest side than the southwest side. That's certainly what we're seeing right now. Um, I am leery of sort of drawing any sort of firm conclusions about sort of demographic breakdowns or, you know, precinct breakdowns because that mail vote was so huge this time around. And in Illinois, they have until November 17th to certify the vote and count every last vote that is eligible. So um, I'm going to be uh, a stick in the mud, I think, and say, I don't know that we can make those conclusions. Mm -hmm. I would say that I would be surprised if it turns out, as it looks right now, that President Trump won the 41st ward but lost the 19th ward. Um, That would be, I think, a significant change from 2016. If that proves out, I will be very interested to report that and find out why. That's Heather Sharon and WTTW also joining me on the Roundup today, WBEC's Dave McKinney. All right, let's keep going and switch from the local to the national. The AP now says that Joe Biden has taken a slight lead in Pennsylvania. When you went to bed, uh, the president of the United States was ahead in Georgia. Now Joe Biden is leading. Donald Trump cannot win re-election without both Pennsylvania and Georgia. If you count the legal votes, I easily win. If you count the illegal votes... They can try to steal the election from us. There is no evidence of widespread fraud. There is no reports of it. There are no reports of systemic issues with the election. They're trying, obviously, to commit fraud. We knew that the president was not going to lose graciously uh, if he if he lost. But frankly, watching him flail like this is just pathetic. One of the biggest stories so far is this slow climb upwards for Joe Biden's numbers over the last 48 hours. Heather, what's the story behind this? Is this a surprise? We knew that Democrats were going to vote in larger numbers than ever before and in much larger numbers than Republicans by mail. And we knew that in states where Republican-controlled legislatures acted, they prevented election officials from counting those ballots 
beforehand or at least starting to process those balance. So I think Florida is a really good comparison point. They had most of their vote totals done by 11 p.m. And certainly that contest wasn't as close mm-hmm. as the other contests appear to be. But I think the really the big difference is, is that on Election Day and at least for part of Wednesday, it appeared that President Trump had a rather significant lead. And I think people sort of forgot what we had been trying to tell them that that was going to be sort of incomplete and not reliable. So I think that that sort of led to a lot of breathless speculation Mm -hmm. and sort of infighting among the Democratic Party already. But I don't think that we can say this was unexpected or unusual, but this is just another way that the pandemic has sort of altered things that we took for granted for, you know, decades. Yeah, I mean, we don't have hanging chads to talk about and, and explain what that is. I mean, we've had kind of you know, issues with Sharpies bleeding through ballots. But I mean, I think the thing we have to remember about, you know, anybody who's watched politics long enough and and these campaigns, if you're on the losing side, no matter who you are, it takes time for that to sometimes just set in. You have to sit in a little bit. I mean, I've watched people do this. They have to sit in it and they have to come around to accepting it. And clearly when the president came out yesterday and gave what I'm not picking sides, we don't know who won or lost this election yet, but like it was distasteful in the way that he was attacking democratic principles and arguing that this election had been stolen from him and that there was fraud. And, you know, all of those things were just so um, coming from a, such a dark place. You know, at the end of the day, what probably will happen if these numbers hold for Biden, you know, I mean, we're going to see Trump kind of fade off and, and he'll still make noise from the sidelines because oh, yeah. that's, that's his nature. It's who he is. But I do think that, you know, they've had now almost a full day since that appearance in the press room at the White House, to offer up examples of this supposed fraud that happened. And we've heard or seen nothing. So, I mean, these words tend to be meaningless if they can't offer proof. I mean, the Biden campaign uh, step into the stage in primetime tonight. We don't know what the subject or what the content will be of that speech, but I wonder if because of the indications of what's happening, the trends, Heather, I mean, do you, do you expect the president to to maybe not declare victory, but but say we're winners? You know, it's hard to tell at this point. And I think there's a real reluctance. Journalists uh, across the board, they don't want to make a call that's wrong. We all want to be first. But I think for once, we've all decided that we want to be right rather than first. So that seems to be the governing mm-hmm. uh, sort of sense right now. However, there's no doubt that it would take a major change in the way that the ballots have been trending for the past 42 hours to give the president an, a significant path to re-election. And I think that that is just a fact that, like Dave said before, I'm not taking sides here. That's mm-hmm. just what the data is telling yeah, right, us. Right, right. I think everybody's wanting to be extremely cautious here because it's such a high stakes election here. And there's so many cross currents at play here. I mean, you know, if we look at Illinois, for example, I mean, they're, you know, legally, uh, local election authorities don't have to report results until December or excuse me, November 17th. So uh, there's like a two week counting period here in Illinois and other states. It's less than that. I was hearing this morning that, you know, they're waiting in Georgia for, you know, possible ballots from overseas, something like 8000 of them to come in. And so until you see kind of how those things shift in these very tight races, no responsible media organization is going to call it. And I know that AP whom we all rely upon to kind of call these races nationally has taken a little bit of flack about calling Arizona as early as they did. They called it earlier in the week for Biden. But yeah, it's it's a this calling of elections is a very it's a science. And 
we've seen with polling how things can go wrong so easily. You know, I think there's this desire among among news organizations to be very cautious. Yeah. But the polling has been wrong. That's the one thing I want to bring up, that they're way off and they're off again. And yes, I guess it doesn't matter. I mean, it's all horse race and popcorn and all that kind of stuff. But there's got to be some sort of look at the way that polling is done in this country. Yeah, I mean, I read an interesting report in the Peoria Journal-Star this morning. Uh, they did an interview with uh, Congresswoman Sherry Bustos out in the Quad Cities. I mean, Bustos has been in a unique position because she's chairwoman of the House Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, and they, they manage all of these contested U.S. House races across the country. And she was complaining loudly about how wrong many of these polls were. And, you know, all we have to do is look – I mean, it's an extreme example, but all we have to do is look at Wisconsin. I mean, it was a much, much closer race. I believe ABC News and Washington Post at some point in the past couple of weeks had a – it was either a 14 or a 17-point spread in Wisconsin favoring Biden. And, you know, while Biden won or appears to have won up there, you know, it wasn't even close. It wasn't even in the ballpark. And so I think what pollsters are struggling with, and they struggled with it in 2016, is being able to find these voters. They either don't want to tolerate these long calls, because if anybody in our audience has gotten one of these calls, you know how, how – I mean, you just got to like basically pour yourself a glass of iced tea and sit down on, a, on the couch and, <laughs> and spend 15 or 20 minutes on the phone with, with these people. It's a very long process. And so I don't know. I don't know what the, the yeah. way to get at this is, but, but there has to be a rethinking of that, clearly. That's WBEZ's Dave McKinney, also with us, Heather Sharon of WTTW. And we can't finish this up without Governor Pritzker's failed graduated income tax proposal. Heather, would you say this was the biggest ballot initiative in the history of Illinois? It absolutely was. It would have fundamentally changed the way that Illinois taxes income, and it went down to really a significant defeat. You know, it certainly won in Cook County, it won in Chicago, but it was handily rejected mm. by the by the rest of the state. And um, I think that it will mean that an an already difficult fiscal situation for the state is increasingly grim and, in fact, dire. And we heard Governor Pritzker this week prepare the state for that, saying that there will be cuts and it will be painful. And it's also likely that there will be tax increases. Yeah. And and I want to play a little bit of Governor Pritzker here. here here's something. Here's some of what he had to say. We're going to have to make some painful cuts. And, um, and it's, you know, this has been brought on by the failure of the fair tax uh, amendment and the people who opposed it for their own selfish interests. Uh, from the beginning, I've told people what the options are, and I talked about them again today, but, you know, we, we need to look at those options and decide what it is that we want to do. Okay, Dave, let me play devil's advocate. For him to say that people rejected it for selfish reasons, I'm not sure that's the case. I feel like a lot of Democrats stepped up, and I think a lot of Republicans, we talked to Leader Durkin about this earlier, there is this concern in Illinois that they don't want to give more money to Springfield uh, based on the fact that they haven't got spending in check. And so the idea that this is just rich people coming out because they don't want to be taxed more, I'm not sure that that's necessarily why it got shot down. I would agree with your point uh, uh, up to a point. But I, I think that, you know, if you look at some of the claims that the other side was putting in their television commercials, some of these claims were just outright misleading. One of them, you know, dealt with this notion 
that this amendment somehow would empower state legislators with this new thing where they could go in and willy-nilly increase tax rates right, they, right, whenever right. they wanted to. That's flat out wrong because they could do that the now. legislature could do it any time they wanted to. And in fact, they have done it repeatedly over time. They've raised it sometimes. They've lowered it sometimes. And then this other claim about retirement income, you saw you saw that threaded into some of the messaging from the other side as well, where they, they talked about the possibility that this would lead to a taxing of, of people's Social Security checks or their pension checks. Governor Pritzker yesterday emphatically said that as we look forward, retirement income to him is not on the table as a way of taxation. The vote yes for fairness uh, group that, that uh, you know, Pritzker had kind of leading the charge for this, you know, in October, mid-October, they put out their own poll numbers that showed that uh, their numbers were 55 percent of, of, of voters were going to vote yes for this, 40 percent no. And of course, they needed 60 percent, really. That was the main benchmark they were aiming for to, to get this thing over the hump. Yeah. It looks like the, what the numbers came in were very close to that, 56 percent to 44 percent statewide. But that was fueled primarily by this huge one-sided push in Chicago. But once you get outside of Chicago, this thing just completely fell apart. It really I mean, did. In, in, I mean, I was looking at the numbers this morning, Justin. I mean, you know, in suburban Cook, yes, it got a majority. It was right about at the state average, 54 to 46. But once you went into, into DuPage, Kane, Lake, McHenry, and Will Counties, uh, places that we normally assume have a little more affluence and, 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 you know, take these economic issues to heart, they just flat out weren't buying the arguments that the governor and his people were putting out here. I mean, the numbers that in those counties for this proposition were in the low 40s, even the high 30s. So it was just a complete failure in the collar counties. And we talked earlier in the show about the power of suburbia. I would say that if the governor and his people had any main failure here, he was getting this message out into those collar counties. Because had he done that and had those voters been convinced and persuaded in a proper way, this thing might yeah. have turned out different. Okay, so the big question, and we're seeing it play out, Heather, was it a referendum on Pritzker or, as Pritzker points out, was a referendum on Madigan? And Democrats are infighting. I've never seen this before. Yeah, I think that is sort of the crucial question. And we started to get a little bit of a sense that a train was leaving the station on the whether Madigan should continue as the head of the Democratic Party in Illinois and whether he should remain as as House Speaker with uh, not only Senator Durbin telling uh, WTTW's own Parrish Schutz that he thought it was time for him to go. Mm -hmm. We heard Governor Pritzker echo that. We've heard Tammy Duckworth say, you know, it's not a great situation. Let's move on. But the question in any of these leadership contests is who will replace him? And Madigan has been speaker literally for decades. He's the longest serving speaker in United States history. The question is, if not him, who? And I think that is the fundamental question that has to be answered before there's really sort of a sense of, okay, well, we're going to, to make Madigan wear the jacket for this. And uh, let's be honest, because of the corruption sort of swirling around him, which of course he denies taking any part of and that he hasn't been charged, that makes him far more likely to sort of fall than somebody like Governor Pritzker, who, let's not forget, you know, he tried to push this over the finish line. He spent, you know, 56, $58 million of his own money. So he's got the deep pockets. And I'm sure Dave will agree with me on this, that in Illinois pockets, if you've got the cash, you've got the power. Yeah. Is it a, I mean, this is downstate. It's other parts of the state that are they're not necessarily uh, in, in line with the governor right now uh, outside of Cook County and Chicago. I think Pritzker's standing is still pretty decent in Chicago and the collar counties. But you are absolutely right about downstate. They, they villainize him. 
Downstate just is never going to come around, I don't think, to Pritzker, even though he's made efforts to be down there and to circulate and to steer money down there and to be fair. Yeah. Uh, they, they just... They, they just don't trust the Chicago piece of it. Well, and I will say this. I mean, we got we got to wrap up here, but I mean, it's such a, a monster week of news. I mean, we didn't even talk about Kim Fox uh, winning the Cook County State's Attorney's race, which I don't know was in doubt. I think that there was a push towards the end by the Republican there and Pat O'Brien to, to make it close. But uh, it, after all, it is a Democrat in Cook County. But uh, an amazing week. And, and I have to say for both of you, amazing work, uh, both uh, when it comes to election night and at your respective places. I've been glued to Chicago tonight. And uh, and Dave, you've done some great work this week. So Dave McKinney from WBEZ and Heather Sharon from WTTW. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Happy Thanks, to do sir. it. And that's today's reset for the most accurate and up-to-date information on the election. Tune into 91.5 WBEZ or stream us at WBEZ.org. I'm Justin Kaufman. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you right back here tomorrow. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.